Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 162. Our first story this week comes from thelivescience.com and it's written by Brandon Spector. Stephen Hawking says he knows what happened before the Big Bang. At the time of the Big Bang, all the matter in the universe was smooshed into an incredibly hot, infinitely dense speck of matter. But what happened before that? It turns out famed physicist Stephen Hawking has an answer, which he gave in an interview with his almost as famous fellow scientist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Hawking discusses these ideas and others in the series finale of Tyson's Star Talk TV show, which airs on March 4th at 11pm. Hawking has an answer to the question... What was there before there was anything? And it relies on a theory known as the no-boundary principle. The boundary condition of the universe is that it has no boundary, Hawking told Tyson. To understand the theory better, grab your universal remote. That is, your remote that controls the universe, and hit rewind. As scientists now know, the universe is constantly expanding. As you move backward in time, then the universe contracts. Rewind far enough, about 13.8 billion years, and the entire universe shrinks to the size of a single atom, Hawking said. This subatomic ball of everything is known as the singularity. Not to be confused with the technological singularity, during which artificial intelligence will overtake humans. Inside this extremely small, massively dense speck of heat and energy, the laws of physics and time as we know them cease to function. Put another way, time as we understand it literally did not exist before the universe started to expand. Rather, the arrow of time shrinks infinitely as the universe becomes smaller and smaller, never reaching a clear starting point. 
According to Tech Times, Hawking says during the show that before the Big Bang, time was bent. It was always reaching closer to nothing, but didn't become nothing, according to the article. Essentially, there never was a Big Bang that produced something from nothing. It just seemed that way from mankind's point of perspective. In a lecture on the no-boundary principle, Hawking wrote, Events before the Big Bang are simply not defined, because there's no way one could measure what happened at them. Since events before the Big Bang have no observational consequences, one may as well cut them out of the theory and say that time began at the Big Bang. This isn't the first time Hawking has discussed this theory. He previously delivered lectures on the topic and starred in a free documentary about it, available on YouTube. And if you're interested in looking at the documentary, visit the show notes at origins.info, click on the link to this article in episode 162 of the Mysteries Abound podcast, and just down towards the bottom there is a link to it. And from the smithsonianmag.com, a story by Jalissa Trevino. The mystery of the sex-changing striped maple trees. Yes, trees can be male or female, and sometimes they switch it up. Scientists have known for some time that trees not only have a sex, but can sometimes switch between sexes. But they haven't always known why. Now, as the Washington Post's Amy Ellis-Nutt reports, a new study suggests that for at least one species, the switch happens after injury. During a biology field course, Jennifer Blake Mahmood, a PhD student at Rutgers University, learned that the striped maple could switch from male to female. But no one knew why. So she and Lena Strew, a professor of environmental and biological sciences at Rutgers, took a closer look at the sex of striped maples. To determine the sex of trees, researchers turned to the flowers, which can take up to 12 months to start blooming, reports Nutt. While many trees have both male and female reproductive parts, others have just one or the other. So the duo cut branches of striped maple trees which are common in the northeast United States and southeastern Canada, from various parts of New Jersey. They placed them in sugar water in a greenhouse and watched until they bloomed, publishing their results in the journal Trees, Structure and Function. The first surprising find was in the development of the flowers. These trees can finalise the development of flower bud parts within three weeks prior to flowering compared to other species which do this many months in advance. But even more unexpected was the sex of the branches. Although all of the trees they sampled from were male, all of the blooms were either female or female and male. In a follow-up test, the researchers examined branches in a few different setups, growing them both inside and outside. They also placed the branches in different solutions, dunking them in either sugary water or plain water. The results were the same as before. Branches turned female or female and male. Something about the branches, not the trees, was causing them to change sex. The researchers concluded that the damage the branches experienced from being cut off a tree must have triggered the switch. Sex changes in trees happen more often than you might think. In 2015, experts at the Royal Botanic Garden in Edinburgh 
noticed the UK's oldest tree, the 5,000-year-old Fortingal Yew in Scotland, was undergoing a sex change, the Guardian reported at the time. The tree had begun sprouting berries on one of its branches, something only female trees do. Researchers had known yew trees could change sex, but were surprised it would happen for such an old tree. And the changes don't just happen for trees that are male or female. Just last year, researchers discovered that gynodiesis plants, a breeding system in which female and hermaphroditic plants live together in a population, could change sex depending on how much light they receive. As for the striped maple, Blake Mahmood tells Nutt that everyday injuries, like a deer chewing on a branch, could prompt the change. They don't have an easy life, so it might make sense that there's a damage cue, she says. If the branch is going to die anyway, it might make sense to be female and produce seeds before dying. Blake Marmud's research seems to build on a 2004 study which found that another species in the Acer genus, Acer rufinev, commonly found in Japan, would switch to female when the tree was in poor health and close to death. According to Nutt, there might also be reason to suggest the sex changes could be more common due to climate change. If long-term changes in climate cause damage to trees, it might impact their reproduction. And from the Guardian.com website, How Sherlock of the Library Cracked the Case of Shakespeare's Identity. And this is written by Robert McCrum. Dr Wolfe is a willowy bright-eyed manuscript scholar, a paleographer specialising in Elizabethan England, who in certain moods of candour might put you in mind of Portia or perhaps Cordelia. She's also a Shakespeare detective who last year made the career-defining discovery that is going to transform our understanding of Shakespeare's biography. In simplest terms, Wolfe delivered the coup de grace to the wild-eyed army of conspiracy theorists, including Vanessa Redgrave and Derek Jacobi, who contested the authenticity, even the existence of the playwright known to contemporaries as Master Willie Shakespeare. Wolfe is an accidental sleuth. Her scholar's passion is as much for old manuscripts as for the obscurity surrounding our national poet. Project Dust Bunny, for example, one of her initiatives at the Folger Shakespeare Library, has made some extraordinary discoveries based on microscopic fragments of hair and skin accumulated in the crevices and gutters of 17th century books. DNA forensics aside... Wolfe's role as a curator at the Folger is to bring her expertise to bear on the tantalising mass of documents that survives from the late 16th century. And yet, despite a heap of legal, commercial and matrimonial evidence, Shakespeare the man continues to slip through scholars' fingers. Four centuries after his death, apart from a handful of crabbed signatures, there is not one manuscript 
letter or diary, we can definitively attribute to the poet, sponsoring the pervasive air of mystery that surrounds his genius. Indeed, the most intimate surviving Shakespeare document remains that notorious will in which he bequeathed his wife his second best bed. Before Wolfe arrived on the scene, all that scholars could be certain about was that a man named Shakespeare or Shakespeare, or Shakespeare was born in Stratford in 1564 and that he was an actor whose name is printed in the collected edition of his work published in 1623. We also know that he married Anne Hathaway and died in 1616, according to legend, on his birthday, St George's Day. The so-called Stratfordian case for Shakespeare rested on these and a few other facts, but basically that was it. In this vacuum, a bizarre fraternity including Mark Twain, Charlie Chaplin and Sigmund Freud have projected a Shakespeare written by a more obviously accomplished writer, Edward de Vere the 17th Earl of Oxford, St Francis Bacon and the playwright Christopher Marlowe to name the leading contenders in a field that includes Sir Walter Raleigh and even Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen herself. In the absence of reliable data, a mountain of speculation has morphed into the weirdest fantasy, notably the 2011 film Anonymous. Wolfe has no time for this. Speaking exclusively for the first time to the Observer, she says... Without the evidence for other contenders, it's hard for me to engage with this line of inquiry. Wolfe's appetite for manuscript corroboration has led her into many dusty corners of the Elizabethan archives. It was on this research instinct that first led her to reopen the file on the coat of arms granted to Shakespeare's father, the small town Glover, in 1596. John Shakespeare from Stratford-upon-Avon was ambitious to rise in the world. He was certainly not the first Englishman keen to put his origins as a provincial tradesman behind him. Among his contemporaries in Stratford, he was a figure of fun for his social climbing. English-class snobbery has a long pedigree. His son would continue the quest for official recognition after his father's death, also attracted metropolitan disdain as an upstart crow beautified with our feathers. In 1601, after his father's death, Shakespeare the upstart returned to the College of Arms to renew the family application for a coat of arms. He had made a small fortune in the theatre and was buying property in and around Stratford. Now he set out to consolidate his reputation as a gentleman Under the rules that governed life at the court of Elizabeth I, only the Queen's heralds could grant this wish. A much-reproduced sketch for a coat of arms crystallised Shakespeare's hope for legitimacy in the antique jargon of heraldry. Gould, on a bend sables, a spear of the first steeled argent. And for his crest, a falcon, his wings displayed argent, supporting a spear gould. The needy applicant also attached a motto, non sans droit, not without right. All this and much more is buried in the archives of the College of Arms in London. Wolfe's fascination with Shakespeare's quest for a family crest grew out of her immersion in the manners and customs of late Elizabethan England, in particular the College of Heralds. These court officials were required to administer the complex rituals governing the lives of the knights, barons and earls 
surrounding Queen Elizabeth. An adjunct to the court, the College of Heralds was not exempt from its own secret feuds. In 1602, the internecine rivalry between Sir William Dethick, the Garter King of Arms, and another herald, Ralph Brooke, burst into the open when Brooke released a list of 23 mean persons whose applications for crests, he claimed, had been wrongfully preferred by de Thick. When Shakespeare the player found himself on the list, his campaign for social advancement seemed in jeopardy. A bitter row broke out at court between two factions. Shakespeare himself became an object of ridicule. Another rival, Ben Jonson, in his satire, Every Man Out of His Humour, poked fun at him as a rustic buffoon who pays £30 for a ridiculous coat of arms with the humiliating motto, Not Without Mustard. It's at this point in the story that Wolfe discovered the smoking gun. In the Brook de Thick feud, it becomes clear that Shakespeare, gent from Stratford, and Shakespeare the player are the same man. In other words, the man from Stratford is indeed the playwright. Crucially, in the long-running authorship debate, there has been a fiercely contested point. But Wolfe's research nails any lingering ambiguity in which the Shakespeare deniers can take refuge. Wolfe is circumspect about making extravagant claims. Speaking carefully, she says her manuscript discoveries fill in gaps, illuminating Shakespeare's character. They point to someone actively involved in defining and defending his legacy in 1602, shortly after his father's death. For Wolfe, it's Shakespeare the man who breaks cover here. He's defending his legacy not only as a playwright, but more importantly to him as a gentleman. The derogatory references to arms belonging to Shakespeare ye player, she says, show that he's playing the same game as everyone else in the period purchasing land in Stratford to support his case to ancient gentility rather than through his astonishing professional success. James Shapiro, best-selling author of 1599, who is persuaded by Wolfe's discoveries, compares her to a Sherlock Holmes of the archives. Shapiro says that Wolfe has had the intellectual independence to see what others have overlooked the skills to make sense of what she has stumbled upon and the modesty not to trumpet the larger implications of those finds. But make no mistake, they are enormously consequential. For Shapiro, Wolfe's work suggests future breakthroughs. I doubt that these are the last archival treasures she will unearth. Her recent finds sharpen our sense of Shakespeare's dogged pursuit of upward mobility and it is one more nail in the coffin of those who can't bring themselves to acknowledge that the Glover's son from Stratford was also the successful man of the theatre who left us so many extraordinary plays. Wolfe says she looks forward to poking about in the archives and is convinced that Shakespeare's identity no longer needs reconfirmation. There is such a wealth of evidence out there that he's the playwright. She adds... I'm sure there's more untapped material waiting to be uncovered. Additional finds will certainly help us understand his life as much as we can understand anyone's life from 400 years ago.
Space is big and dark, and since there is no air, no one can hear you scream as you float away forever and ever and ever. But those are only the human-sized terrors that space has to offer our nightmares. Because as you will see if you step back a few thousand light years from your simple humanoid perspective, you will discover that the universe contains some much stranger, much larger and much more terrifying mysteries than you ever thought to be afraid of. From the grunge.com website. An article by Albert Lakey and Jason Innan. Terrifying Unexplained Mysteries of Deep Space. The Wow Signal. In 1977, the Big Ear Radio Telescope at Ohio State University was busy listening. Big Ear was built in 1963 for the purpose of listening to wideband radio emissions from the stars. But in 1973 it was converted for the use of SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and began searching the skies for more specific narrowband signals that might indicate intelligent life. Being the 1970s, however, the analysis of the incoming radio signals wasn't particularly complex mostly recording frequency, signal strength and bandwidth. But in 1977, it was good enough for the operators to know it had picked up something interesting. In August 1977, astronomer Jerry Eamon was looking at computer printouts of the signals received by Big Ear over the previous few days, when he came across a sequence of numbers and letters that have since become famous. 6EQUJ5 might seem innocuous, but along with other data, it represents a continuous narrowband signal of around 1420 MHz from a fixed point in space in the constellation Sagittarius that gradually grows in strength and then fades as the radio telescope orientation passes across its source. When Eamon saw this sequence on paper, he was so surprised he circled it and immediately wrote WOW in the margin hence its name. Over the years, Eamon and others have repeatedly searched for the signal again and tried to come up with more mundane explanations for its existence. But after ruling out aircraft, asteroids, reflected terrestrial signals, space farts and the bat phone as alternate sources, the only explanation they haven't been able to rule out is extraterrestrial intelligence. 1991 VG. In 1991, American astronomer James Scotty spotted something strange in the sky. From his first observations, he made predictions about where the object would show up again. But when he pointed his telescope in that direction, he failed to spot the object. Because it was so weird, the standard assumptions he made about its likely speed and direction were wrong and it was only by accident that he caught another glimpse of it in a later observation. When he put two and two together, he realised that this strange object was circling the Sun in a very similar orbit to the Earth. This is quite rare for a natural object, because the proximity of Earth and its gravitational field will usually disrupt its orbit, sending it off on a new path. 
The only realistic explanation was that the object was some remnant of the various big-budget Cold War space launches, like a Saturn V second stage or some Russian hardware. But when the course of the object was plotted backwards to its last close Earth approach around 1973, it failed to match up with any of the known launches of that era, leaving the whole thing a mystery, or a possible alien space probe. The Travelling Black Hole Black holes are bad news, but here's one way to make them worse. Send them flying across space. That's apparently what happened to one particularly large black hole, and scientists can't quite figure out why. In 2012, NASA discovered what, in all likelihood, was a humongous black hole being kicked out of its galaxy. It was observed hurtling away at speeds of several million miles per hour. That a black hole got chucked out, like an unruly bar patron, is bizarre enough. But consider just how massive a black hole is. As astronomer Francesca Savano, who led the study that discovered the black hole, explained, This black hole is millions of times more massive than the Sun. And this galaxy just sent it packing like nothing. That's like lifting an elephant with your pinky and flinging it into the next state. There are a few theories about how this happened, though none proven. Savano and her team theorised that two galaxies, and the black holes in each, merged. The resulting gravitational waves gave the now single hole a humongous kick start, causing it to escape. Meanwhile, another theory involves three supermassive black holes clashing, with the lightest one getting kicked out of the party. Yet another theory says that there are two supermassive black holes, but the one that looks like it's leaving is actually arriving, attracted by the second hole. Current data supports the gravitational wave theory, but nothing's proven, aside from how a massive invisible matter sucker speeding through space is the stuff of nightmares. ASASSN-15IH Supernovas are some of the largest explosion humans are ever likely to witness, and like most loud bangs, it doesn't take too many before we start getting used to them. That is, until an even larger bang happens. Then you sit up and take notice. This is the case with ASASSN-15IH, a superluminous supernova first observed in June 2015 that originated 2.8 billion light-years away, and thus 2.8 billion years ago. What makes this supernova special is that scientists can't explain it. Unlike a regular supernova, it was ten times brighter and considerably more powerful. Also, when astronomers analysed the light it was emitting, they couldn't find evidence of the hydrogen that should have been present. The best explanation involves something called a magnetar, a kind of magnetic neutron star that by rapidly spinning with a powerful magnetic field could provide extra energy to the expanding ball of superheated gas. However, it didn't take long for our supernova to emit more energy than a magnetar should have been able to provide, and it just kept on going. 
Months after it first bloomed, it was still giving off more energy than the entire Milky Way galaxy we reside in. But the strange didn't stop there. The unusual behaviour for a supernova consists of a bright flash, followed by a slow fading. And while ASA SSN 15IH initially followed this course, a few months after it started to fade, the ultraviolet light started to increase again. This is not entirely unknown behaviour for supernovas, but the light being emitted didn't fit the usual pattern. Scientists are still at a loss to fully explain the biggest bang known to mankind since the first one. And that's pretty scary. KIC 8462852 A popular way to look for planets these days is to measure the amount of light a star is giving off. When a planet passes in front of its host star, it will cause a small but detectable drop in brightness. And by measuring the frequency of these dips, plus the size, it's possible to determine much about the nature of the planet, like if it's potentially habitable and thus home to alien life. Sometimes, however, the telescopes doing the observing see things that are harder to explain. KIC 8462852 is a star in the Cygnus constellation approximately 1400 light years away from Earth. Unlike a star with a planet in orbit, this star displayed brightness dips of up to 20%, and they definitely weren't regular. One explanation was a cloud of comet fragments that found their way into a tight orbit around the star, but another theory proposes something a lot more concerning. In 1960, physicist Freeman Dyson proposed a theory that an intelligent alien civilization might grow to a point where it required more energy than could be generated on a single planet. He theorised that such an advanced civilization might be able to construct a massive orbiting structure called a Dyson Sphere. That would be able to capture a significant proportion of the solar energy of a system's star and make it available to the population. Such a megastructure would capture most of the visible light of the star but would still emit some infrared radiation and would therefore be identifiable. A variation of this theory, known as a Dyson Swarm, has been proposed as an explanation for what's happening around KIC 8462852. In this scenario, the civilization is building a swarm of orbiting satellites to achieve a similar goal to the sphere, but without the complications of trying to actually build a ball around a star. Any civilization that is capable of building even a Dyson Swarm would be so far ahead of us technologically, we can't even imagine what they are capable of. And while NASA has found no evidence of radio emissions coming from that part of the sky, if they are capable of constructing Dyson Swarms, they have probably found a quicker way to communicate over large distances than electromagnetic radiation, not to mention quick ways to eradicate inferior Galactic Neighbours. Have you ever had a nightmare where you're trapped and being dragged towards your inescapable doom? Well, you might not want to know, but on a galactic scale we are living that nightmare right now. That's because at a speed of 2.2 million kilometres per hour, 
The Milky Way, its companion galaxies and various galactic hangers-on are all moving towards an area of space we don't know much about. The speed at which we are moving implies an area of space creating a massive gravitational force, roughly equivalent to 10,000 galaxies. And since it is sucking in everything within a considerable distance, this mysterious region has been dubbed the Great Attractor. And if that isn't terrifying enough, we also can't see it. The great and terrifying attractor sits in a region of space referred to by astronomers as the zone of avoidance, which is ironic, because we can't avoid it. It's called that because it sits exactly on the other side of the densest part of the Milky Way. Thus observing it through all those stars and massive clouds of space dust is nearly impossible. Nevertheless, astronomers have turned some of their instruments in the direction of the attractor and determined that while there are a bunch of previously undiscovered galaxies in that region, there are still not enough to explain the force being exerted. This leaves the true source of our eventual doom as either a previously inconceivable gravitational mass that we can't identify, or perhaps the interstellar equivalent of an internet-dating serial killer obscuring its identity behind a perfectly crafted profile to entice everyone within reach and draw them inexorably into their grubby space fan with blacked-out windows, dirty carpet, matching shovel accessories and an entire supercluster's worth of chloroform. Gamma Ray Bursts Gamma Ray Bursts, or GRBs, don't happen very often. And considering they're basically giant, super-long explosions of energy, the most recent one, 2013's GRB 130427A, lasted 20 hours. That's a good thing. However, their rarity means we don't know too much about them, even though one may wind up killing us all someday. We don't know exactly what GRBs are or how they happen. As NASA explains, GRBs might be caused by low-energy gamma rays that, once exposed to space, explode into high-energy rays. But even NASA admits that's just a theory, as are any other ideas beyond the horrendous space kablooey come to life. And they are horrendous indeed. A 2014 study showed frequent GRB explosions have left swaths of the universe completely inhospitable. That study also said there's a good chance a GRB caused at least one mass extinction event in Earth's history. And while we probably won't have a follow-up GRB, according to the BBC, our area isn't really vulnerable to one, it's still possible. The more we know about these things, the easier it might become to detect them before they explode and kill everything in sight. But that knowledge may be a long way off. zombie stars. Does anything sound more mental than zombie stars? Amazingly, they're real. Maybe. Few examples, even hypothetical ones, of zombie stars exist. But enough are out there to make you wonder if they're real. Space is pretty weird, remember? In August 2014, NASA announced it had discovered a star system that had fallen victim to a weak supernova explosion, one dubbed SN2012Z because scientists are not typically novelists. Usually, when stars supernova, it's game over. 
But in this case, scientists discovered that a part of the system's dwarf star may have survived as a sort of zombie star. If true, this would likely be because the supernova was a weak one, appropriately enough called a type lax supernova. This explosion would damage a star beyond repair, but not outright destroy it, leaving behind a zombie star. No such zombie has officially been confirmed yet, but it's currently the best explanation for how some stars can get blown to bits, but still hang on. Here's another reason they're called zombie stars. They apparently scream as they eat other stars. As NASA explained, several seemingly dead stars are emitting high-energy X-rays that could well be their howls or screams. If that's not freaky enough, they scream while siphoning energy off other nearby stars, essentially feasting on them. But NASA doesn't yet know how they emit these X-rays, considering they're supposedly dead. Perhaps they don't want to know, because an undead star basically eating the brains of a living one isn't a reality many of us are strong enough to face. From the atlasobscura.com website, a story by Cara Guillermo. In Kansas City, one stubborn cave won't give up its secrets. Is Roanoke Park Cave mysterious or just boring? In most ways, Roanoke Park in Kansas City, Missouri is like other urban parks. Early plans describe it as a bit of wilderness in the middle of a bustling neighbourhood. On a given day, kids scramble over its playground, neighbours walk their dogs through its green acres, and teens meet for pick-up games on its soccer fields and volleyball courts. But Roanoke Park has a secret. On its south side, just across from the tennis courts, stands a stone and concrete wall about six feet high, built into a limestone bluff. This was once the entrance to Roanoke Park Cave. At one point open to the world, the cave was blocked off sometime in the mid-20th century and is now completely inaccessible. Interested parties from cavers to archivists to local homeowners association are trying to figure out what, if anything, happened there. What I really want to do is just bust the damn wall open, says Jacqueline Danger with a grin in her voice. As a member of Kansas City Area Grotto, a local cave exploration and conservation group, Danger spends plenty of time underneath her home state, spelunking through karst caverns and exploring the area's many abandoned mines. But Roanoke Park Cave, just a few blocks from her apartment, holds a special fascination. It's right in the middle of the city, so everyone knows about it, she says. You get jazzed about it. Official information on the cave is slim. The state of Missouri's geological records contain only its name and coordinates, and dedicated hobbyists haven't been able to do much better. The only data we have is that it's in Roanoke Park, and it's closed, says Jim Cooley, 
director of the Missouri Speleological Society, which is working on mapping all the caves in the state. It was bricked up or blocked by the city or the park district decades ago. To fill this vacuum, locals entertain a flurry of stories about the cave. There's a mythos to it, says Danger. One common one holds that Jesse James, the infamous outlaw, once hid there with his horses while on the run. Other feature endangered children, a pair of young girls lost forever, or a boy who got wedged in the entrance and had to be yanked out by the fire department. Other stories, the most enticing to actual cavers, deal with the cave's size or supposed secret entrances. The story I like the most is that it connects all the way to Hyde Park, about a mile away, says Danger. Or if there was some type of crawl shaft in the woods or under a manhole that's been there since the 40s, those would be really exciting avenues. Presented with these hypotheses, Cooley debunks them one by one. Jesse James supposedly hid out in every cave in the state of Missouri, he says. It's undoubtedly true that he would ride into a cave every once in a while in the summer because it's free air conditioning. Who wouldn't? But besides Cleveland Cave in St. Clair County, which features a carving of his name, I'm not so sure he did a whole lot of hiding out in caves, he says. There are two documented cases of children getting lost in Missouri caves, he adds, but no such record exists for Roanoke Park. Although Cooley wishes people would focus on the many caves in his state that in his mind have more to offer, he's not surprised by the gossip. Caves are a very fecund source of imaginative embellishment, he says. He likes cave rumours to a particularly drafty game of telephone. What you will find is someone will whisper to their neighbour, they blocked up Roanoke Park to keep people safe. And they'll say to their neighbour, they blocked up Roanoke Park Cave because someone got lost in there. By the time it comes around the circle, the 4th Cavalry disappeared in there during the Civil War and they're still looking for the horses. Over the years, this particular drip of humour has formed a stalactite of certainty. Something happened here. The Roanoke Protective Homes Association, otherwise dedicated to raising awareness of local zoning laws, hosts a webpage focused on getting to the bottom of the cave mystery. It features the only known historical newspaper articles about the cave. Two from the Kansas City Star, which call it Jesse James's Cave, proving that rumours die hard, and one from the March 1946 Westport High School crier. Venturesome boys sometimes crawled clear through, but the passage was closed years ago by cave-ins, that article says. The group is dedicated, they have several archivists on tap, to search microfish records, if the date range for relevant events can ever be narrowed. I think they love the mystique of it, says Danger. They've also posted a written history by a long-time resident, identified as John B., who got to go inside once, in 1946 or 47, after vandals tore down the entrance barrier. As I recall, it was a large, bowl-like cavern with a small opening at the rear that I assumed continued under the street above, writes John B. He offers one convincing on-site detail. There was considerable dampness in the cave. Dampness or no, danger wants in. A lot of people will love to have it open, she says. We could open it and gate it. 
and it could be a bat sanctuary right in the city and an attraction for people to go and see. And of course, she could finally figure out how far it goes. She's dedicated a considerable amount of time to convincing Cooley to ask the city to open it up, but he won't budge. Roanoke Park Cave is not awesome, nor massive, nor cool, he says. It's an X-cave, blocked up. Faced with both literal and human brick walls, invested parties have had to resort to more shadowy methods. I know a guy who was going there for a couple of weeks to work on it with a pickaxe at night, says Danger. But it's just so laborious. Her pet idea involves drilling a hole and filling it with a special kind of expanding foam, used by firefighters during rescues, that can crack concrete. You break it looser with that, she says. Then you pack in a bunch of explosives, and then you run like hell. That at least would make a great and true story for the future. When a farmer in Otago, New Zealand, saw a bizarre-looking lamb in his flock, he first assumed a wild goat had snuck in and impregnated one of his ewes. The newborn had a lamb-shaped body, yet was covered with straight, lustrous wool, more like the hair of an angora goat than a typical sheep. News of the geep, or sheep-goat hybrid, soon reached the local papers. But when scientists saw photos they immediately suspected the baby animal was something else. For decades they had been hoping to study a rare woolly mutant called a felting luster mutant, a sheep which has straight, fine wool instead of the usual crimped stuff. From the bbc.com website, a story by Eloise Gibson. The strange sheep that baffled scientists. You can see it when the lambs are born, they have a different sheen, says Jeff Plowman, a wool researcher at New Zealand's Ag Research Science Company. It doesn't have a dull look, it's shiny and bright. But the naturally occurring mutants often die as lambs because other genetic health problems with their skin, teeth and lungs. Finding one robust to study is difficult. This little geek didn't survive its first winter. However, DNA testing before it died confirmed it was 100% sheep, leaving the scientists determined to find others like it. We started advertising around, said Plowman. Soon farmers from all over New Zealand were phoning the wool researchers and reporting strange lambs, only too pleased for a chance to be rid of their unwanted mutants. Even when the lustrous creatures live to adulthood, they suffer from chills and damp, matted coats, making them virtually useless as shearing animals. Eventually, Plowman and his team found the sheep they had been waiting for, a mutant so tough she had already survived a winter living in the frigid hills. Maxine, as she became known, was destined to become dog food unless the scientists saved her. The farmer said, We've found your sheep. 
And actually, she's in the dog tucker paddock because the wool is useless, says Ploughman. When the scientists mated Maxine with an ordinary merino ram, they found something surprising. Her mutation was genetically dominant. She gave birth to Sharon, the sheep, a strong, healthy young ewe with silky straight wool who researchers are hoping holds vital clues to solving a range of hairy mysteries. From identifying human hair at crime scenes, to designing shinier, softer wool, to uncovering the secret to better hair care products. Along with producing milk, growing hair is something humans share with all other mammals, including seemingly distant relations such as echidnas and platypuses, says the wool project leader at Ag Research, Dwayne Harland. Mammals' hair comes in a range of textures. A sheep's wool is much more like ours than, say, the fur of a lab mouse, says Harland. That's what makes sheep valuable research subjects for studying the structure of human hair, along with the fact that scientists can selectively breed sheep, whereas doing so with humans would be creepy. Even the basic properties of hair, such as what determines whether it looks straight or curly, or why some people's is prone to frizz, remain a little mysterious, says Harland. Of all the biological fibres that exist, for example silk or cotton or other things, Hair is one of the most complicated, he says. It's complex enough that we don't quite understand how things are arranged on a nanometer scale and the way in which the different proteins are combined to define the structure. For example, why does some people's hair frizz up when it's humid? That's a lot of interest to personal care companies because we really don't quite understand what makes it happen to people. The sheep provide the link, says Harland. The basic rule with hair is that finer fibres are curlier, while straighter hair is thicker and coarser. Sheep's wool, especially fine wool like merino, is many times curlier than even the tightest human afro, which is why fine wool garments feel nice to wear when a jumper made from human hair would scratch you. But mutants like Sharon break the mould by having wool that is both fine and straight. That gives researchers a rare opportunity to study the two properties independently and perhaps uncover what genes control straightness and other aspects of hair shape. Like Sharon, the first straight-haired human was probably a mutant, says Harland. But straight-haired humans obeyed the usual rule by having coarser hair than their curly-maned cousins. Straight-haired people also escape the other health weaknesses often suffered by sheep like Sharon, which may explain why they proliferated. Still, there are human genetic diseases that affect people in similar ways to the mutant straight-wooled sheep, says Harland. You get people who have skin conditions or problems with their teeth, and their hair is also badly affected. And there's the occasional rare one, where a particular keratin gene has been knocked out, and families have no hair at all, and sometimes no fingernails. Meanwhile in America, other researchers are using human genes to recreate a person's hair structure. That could help crime scene investigators work out what someone's hair looks like based on a DNA sample. More immediately, the New Zealand researchers want to help farmers like the one in Otago who originally found the so-called geep. Sheep farmers are struggling to make enough money from ordinary low-value wool. But when sheep farms convert to high-value dairy cows, the more intensive farming methods can harm the environment. 
Ploughmen and Harland want to let sheep farmers make more profit from keeping fewer, more valuable animals. That means breeding Sharon's luster into tougher sheep varieties. One day Ploughman aims to see a fashion model sashaying down a Paris catwalk wearing expensive shimmering wool created using tricks they learned from studying Sharon. If you could get a fine, shiny wool in a sheep that has no weaknesses like foot rot, muses Ploughman, what we are trying to do is differentiate wool to provide a market and make it viable again. In the meantime, Sharon lives in what Harlan describes as a rather resort-like condition near Christchurch, north of Otago in New Zealand's South Island. In her first spring, researchers brought her a jacket for warmth and built her a wind shelter made from hay, which Sharon promptly ate. Her carers shear the three-year-old beast regularly to prevent her quirky wool from tangling. They monitor her stress levels. While their star subject nibbles pasture, Ploughman, Harland and others at Ag Research create 3D models of her wool structure using super-powerful microscopes. Soon they plan to sequence her genome. Ultimately, they hope Sharon will teach them how to breed a hardy sheep with wool that is stronger, shinier and softer, all the while teaching us why our own hair appears smooth or frizzy. Maritime lore abounds with stories of ghost ships. Those ships that sail the world's oceans manned by a ghostly crew and destined never to make port. The most well-known of these tales is that of the Mary Celeste. But one of the eeriest stories has to be the mystery of the Octavius. From the vintagenews.com website. A story by Ian Harvey. The mystery of the Octavius. An 18th century ghost ship was discovered with the captain's body found frozen at his desk, still holding his pen. The story opens in 1761 with the Octavius docked in the port of London to take on a cargo destined for China. This majestic sailing ship left port with the full crew, the skipper and his wife and son. They arrived safely in China and unloaded their cargo. They headed back to sea once she was loaded with goods destined for British shores. But as the weather was unusually warm, the captain decided to sail home via the Northwest Passage, a voyage that at the time had not been accomplished. This was the last anyone heard of the vessel, her crew or her cargo. Octavius was declared lost. On October 11, 1775, the whaling ship Herald was working the frigid waters off Greenland when it spotted a sailing ship. On nearing the ship, the crew saw that the ship was weather-beaten, the sails were tattered and torn and hanging limply on the masts. The captain of the Herald ordered a boarding party to search the vessel, which they had determined was the Octavius. The boarding party arrived on deck to find it deserted. They broke open the ship's hatch 
and scramble down the ladder into the semi-darkness below. What a terrifying sight met their eyes. They found the entire 28-man crew frozen to death in their quarters. In the captain's cabin, they found the captain seated at his desk, pen in hand, with the ship's logbook open on the desk in front of him. The inkwell and other everyday items were still in their place on the desk. Turning around, they saw a young woman wrapped in a blanket on the bunk, frozen to death, along with the body of a young boy. The boarding party was terrified. Grabbing the ship's log, they fled from the Octavius. In their mad flight, they lost the middle pages of the logbook that were frozen solid and came loose from the bookbinding. They arrived back on the Herald with just the first and last pages of the logbook, which were enough for the master of the Herald to determine at least a part of the story of the voyage. The captain of the Octavius had tried to navigate the Northwest Passage, but his ship had become imprisoned in the ice of the Arctic, and the entire crew perished. The ship's last recorded position was 75 degrees north, 160 west, which placed the Octavius 250 miles north of Barrow, Alaska. As the Octavius had been found off the coast of Greenland, it must have broken loose from the ice at some stage and completed its voyage through the passage to come out on the other side, where it met the Herald. The crew of the Herald were frightened of the Octavius and feared that it was cursed, so they simply left it adrift. To this day, it has never been sighted again. Author David Meyer tried to track down the story of the Octavius. In his blog, he considers the idea that the Octavius could be the same ship as the Gloriana, which was boarded in 1775 by the captain of the Triagain, John Warrens. He recorded that he found a frozen crew that had been dead for 13 years and the date of the discovery was spookily similar, November 11, 1762. Are these tales of the same vessel? In the Gloriana story, there is no mention of the Northwest Passage, which remains even today a place of mystery and magic, but that adds just a little bit of spice to the tale of the Octavius. And while we're in the mood for a ghostly ship story, let's do another. Also from the vintagenews.com, and this one is written by Ian Harvey. One of the most intriguing nautical mysteries, the Carol A. Deering Ghost Ship. The discovery of a grounded and abandoned schooner in North Carolina in the winter of 1921 has led to intense speculation over the years, with some even saying the ship was the victim of the Bermuda Triangle. 
In September of 1920, Captain W.B. Wormel, a retired seaman with years of experience, was assigned to the main schooner Carol A. Deering after its captain, William H. Merritt, took ill. The ship had a 10-man crew of Danish sailors with orders to deliver a shipment of coal to Rio de Janeiro. The Deering was built in Bath, Maine in 1919, the last ship of the G.G. Deering Company. She was 255 feet long and 45 feet wide, with five masts and three decks. She was luxurious for a cargo ship, outfitted in oak, mahogany and ashwood, with a functioning lavatory, steam heat and electricity. While the coal was being unloaded at Rio de Janeiro, the captain granted leave to his crew. Captain Wormel met with the captain of another cargo ship and friend, Captain Goodwin, and discussed his lack of confidence in his crew other than his regard for the engineer, Herbert Bates. The Deering set sail from Rio in 1920 and stopped for supplies in Barbados. During their stop, while in the town, first mate Charles B. McClellan got drunk at the Continental Cafe and was overheard complaining about Captain Wormel's competence and making a threat against the captain's life. McClellan was arrested and jailed, but was released on Wormel's orders, and they sailed onwards to Hampton Roads. The ship was seen by the Cape Lookout Lightship in North Carolina on January 28, 1921. The Deering attempted to hail the lightship's keeper, Captain Jacobson, who reported that a man with ginger hair and an accent told him the Deering had lost its anchors. Jacobson acknowledged the information, but his radio was not working and he was not able to report to authorities. He noticed that the crew seemed to be wandering about on the foredeck, an unusual practice. On January 29, 1921, the Deering was seen grounded on Diamond Shoals off the coast of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. Rescue ships were dispatched, but inclement weather caused a delay, and the ship was not boarded until February 4th. The ship's log and navigation equipment, the crew's possessions and the lifeboats were gone. The galley was set up for a meal with food, still in a frying pan, and coffee on the stove, but there was no one on board the ship. There were several different footprints in the captain's quarters indicating activity there, and there was a map chronicling the ship's route in the captain's handwriting up until January 23rd. After that, the records were written in a different hand. The Coast Guard ship Manning tried unsuccessfully to salvage the Deering. They were forced to dynamite the ship so it would not interfere with other shipping traffic. The Deering's desertion under such strange circumstances created speculation all over the world. Bootlegging, hurricanes, piracy, aliens and an insubordinate crew were some of the theories suggested. It is a favourite victim of the Bermuda Triangle, the region stretching from Bermuda to Puerto Rico that has supposedly swallowed up more than 1,000 ships and planes. An investigation demanded by Captain Wormel's wife was opened involving the United States Commerce Department, the Treasury, the Justice Department, the Navy and the State of North Carolina. Secretary of Commerce and future President Herbert Hoover and his assistants Lawrence Ritchie were placed in charge of the investigation. They determined that the sulphur freighter Hewitt and other ships had disappeared in the same area 
However, many of the crafts were sailing near large hurricanes. Ritchie tried to trace the route from its last sighting at Cape Lookout to running aground at Diamond Shoals, using logs of the Coast Guard lightships, and determined that the Hewitt and Deering must have been sailing away from the area of the storms. An FBI agent went to Dare County in July 1921 and asked local Coast Guardsmen if they believed the crew had mutinied and abandoned the ship. Captain Valance of the Cape Hatteras Station said the coastline was too jagged for lifeboats to land. I believe they abandoned her after taking everything of value, he said, and ran her up onto the shoals intentionally. Wormel's problems with First Mate McClellan were well documented at their stop in Rio de Janeiro, and Captain Jacobson at Cape Lookout knew the man who hailed his ship was not Captain Wormel, nor was he an officer. The investigation was closed in late 1922 with no answers ever given, but either mutiny or pirates were assumed to be the cause. On the north side of Iowa City, Iowa next to Hickory Hill Park, there is a cemetery that at first glance is like any other. It has nearly 40 acres that has served the community since the 1840s, acting primarily as a Protestant cemetery. As with any cemetery of this age, it's filled with beautiful monuments to those buried there, celebrating both their life and deaths. There is one monument, however, that stands above the rest, the Dark Angel of Oakland Cemetery. From the creepytimes.com, a story by Danny Beauregard. The Dark Angel of Oakland Cemetery. The Dark Angel of Death statue stands at 8.5 feet, not including its stone base, near the centre of the cemetery. As imposing as it is, it's no wonder it has garnered such an ominous reputation. There's been some genuine tragedy in the history of this statue, so let's look at the history and see whether it lives up to its reputation. The story of the statue starts with a woman named Teresa Dolzel. A midwife by trade, she was a capable woman. In the late 1800s, she suddenly became a widow and moved to Iowa City with her son Eddie for work purposes. Unfortunately, tragedy would follow Teresa when her son fell tragically ill with meningitis and died. Eddie was buried at Oakland Cemetery using a monument carved in the shape of a tree stump. This monument is still there to this day, next to the Dark Angel. After the death of her son, Teresa returned to Oregon, where she eventually met and married Nicholas Feldevert. Sadly for Teresa, Nicholas would die a few short years later, in 1911. One could only imagine the grief that Teresa felt at this point, but what we do know for certain is that she decided to move back to Iowa City. Once there, she contacted and commissioned the imposing bronze statue from Chicago artist Mario Corbel. 
When it was erected in 1913, the statue was a bright and beautiful gold. Nicholas Feldevert's ashes were placed inside the base, and Eddie's monument was placed beside the great angel. At her death in 1924, her ashes were placed beside her husband's in the base of the angel. This is the point where we go from facts to not-so-factual. One of the wilder rumours is that on the night of Teresa's death, there was a brutal thunderstorm. Witnesses say they saw the great angel being hit by thunderstorm lightning a number of times, turning it black in the process. Still other stories say that the statue took several years to turn black, starting with the eyes on Teresa's death, and eventually making its way throughout the rest of the statue over time. Stranger still were the rumours of the statue's deadly capabilities. Over the years, stories of the statue's supposed curse have become plentiful, almost too much to be ignored. The locals will often tell the story of the young woman who visited the statue and kissed its feet during a full moon. She was dead within six months. Then there's the man who visited the statue with friends. Skeptical, he bragged that he could touch the statue and nothing would happen. He did, and dropped of a heart attack right then and there. As you can imagine, the history of the stories make the statue a favourite place for enthusiasts and professionals alike. Professionals have come away with strange readings of the statue itself, high thermal readings and strange sounds. Whether you believe the supernatural stories or not, it's clear that the statue has an incredible history and scientific analysis appears to show something is there. Anyway, you swing it. It's a remarkable story that feels like there's more to come. The bandwidth for today's podcast was provided by TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. And remember, if you'd like to listen to more of the Mysteries Abound podcasts, you can do this by becoming a patron of the Mysteries Abound podcast. By becoming a patron of the podcast at the Patreon website, you will gain access to another two or three Mysteries Abound podcasts every month. Your patronage can be achieved at patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex. And if you're not sure of the address, just go to the show notes at origins.info and click on the link there to the patreon.com website. Becoming a patron allows me the time to produce more of these podcasts each month. So if you're interested, patreon.com forward slash Paul Rex. So until next time, everyone, this is Paul saying bye for now. Keep well, keep safe, and thank you for your support. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.